Welcome to the Holy City Church Podcast Station. This is Pastor Angel. If you missed Sunday's sermon or want to listen to it again, you're in the right place. We're glad that you can take the time to catch up as we go through God's Word together. So I hope you're ready. But if you're not, grab your Bible. Let's get ready for what God has in store for us today. We're going to look at the second chapter of Timothy, and he says, first of all, then I urge that, I urge that petition, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life and in all godliness and dignity. This is good. And it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed at herald and apostle. I am telling you the truth. I am not lying. And I teach, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and, a, and good sense. <clears throat> Not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works. And it is proper for a woman who pro- professes the worship to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow women to teach or to have authority over men. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for this time, Father. I pray that as we look through this chapter, Lord, that you have revealed to us that we may be able to understand, Father, and that your words be the ones to change us. And Father, I pray that the words that I speak may be yours and not mine. In your name we pray. Max Anderson, in a commentary, tells a story about when when he was younger, being at a Sandlot baseball field in Pennsylvania. This game was unlike any other professional or organized driven game. It was a street pickup game that would take place all around during the summer. The kids would gather and they would just randomly start games and they would just play. It wasn't anything professional, anything out of the ordinary. It was just kids playing pickup games. And during one of these games, there was, there was a point that everyone was at home plate arguing about a call. See, in these games, no one hires umpires. And these calls are usually made by personal honesty or committee. Jack said he was safe, but Eddie and Max said that he was out by a mile. And back and forth, they fought, safe, out, safe, out. And everyone on Jack's team backed him up, while everyone on Eddie's team backed him up. 
So they finally settled on flipping a coin, but no one was happy about it. And Max came to a conclusion that baseball needs umpires. And I will agree with Max when he says baseball needs umpires because umpires, umpires hold the players to a proper standards and they make sure that everything is done the way it should be and everything is done fairly and everything is done right. And Paul seems to have that same idea when he instructed Timothy to stay in Ephesus. And this is because the church too needs guidelines to hold us to God's standards. And sometimes we need people, and what I mean sometimes, it's all the time, we need someone to take that lead to make sure that everything is being done the way it is. And in this chapter, Paul, when speaking to Timothy, is referring specifically in regards to public worship. Because God has set a standard on how we approach public worship in the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus was struggling with a few of those principles, which we're going to look at today. And as we examine the words that Paul gives to Timothy, it is important that we understand the context in which Paul is bringing this up. When we say that Paul is referring to public worship, this means that it's in regards to worshiping together. When we gather for worship, he's not referring to a private devotional time that you have on your own or with your family. He's not talking about when you yourself are going to go into prayer. He's not talking about your studying time. He's not talking about when you're in your prayer closet, when not even your family is allowed to bother you. Scripture speaks about how to handle and how to approach those other situations. But this specifically, right here, he's talking about a gathering of believers to worship in a public place. A place, a public place, which Scripture calls the house of God. So how do we know that he's talking about this, right? We're not just making this up. It's not just something that, you know, people just gather and say, well, let's just put this together and say this is it because, you know, that way we don't look bad, right? If you look at the end of chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it says, In case I am delayed to let you know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. Because it is the church of the living God, the support and bulk walk of the truth. So this is the saying. This instructions that I am delivering to you is in case I don't make it in regards to your uh, church life, your church gathering. For now, as we look at chapter 2, we can, we can go very deep into Every different sections in this chapter, there's, there's a few verses here that is a sermon all on its own, but we're going to look at it as a whole. We're going to look at the whole chapter because we want to look at the specific instructions that Paul has for public worship. 
So what is Paul's instructions for them as they worship together? And it starts right in verse 1. He's telling them that they all should pray. All should pray for everyone. Here's verse 1. First of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and those who are in a high position. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. So Paul starts by calling them for, by, he, starts by, he starts with calling for supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people all around the world. And these things that he's asking is the foundation of prayer. Supplication is to ask. Prayer is to communicate. Intercession is to refer it is referred to as a request that you make on behalf of others. And thanksgiving is, as it says, to give thanks. And if you remember, when Jesus talked about how to pray, you go back and you look at the way he teaches us how to pray. All this is included in it. So Paul is saying, when you come together to worship, pray. Pray. And now that it should be the first thing you do, it's not like he's saying the first before you start anything, the first thing you do on a prayer service, on a worship service, excuse me, is pray. Start with a prayer. He's not saying that. Okay? But what he's saying is that it's very important that you pray. Prayer must be included in your worship service. He's saying don't neglect it. Or make it seem like it's no big deal. Prayer is important and it must be done together. When you come to the worship service. And when you do pray. It should just not be a prayer for each other. We shouldn't just not be praying for each other. It should be a prayer for everyone. This call of prayer. This call for prayer that Paul is talking about, it's a universal call. And it's universal in the sense that we are called to pray for all people. Not just a specific group of people. Not only those who keep the law. Remember, these are guys who are coming, false teachers coming in, talking about, no, you should do certain things. And these, if you do certain things, that's who's worthy. He's not saying, come and pray for those who are worthy. He says, come and pray for all people. Because our duty and concern is for all people. And this includes praying for kings and all those in high position. This means the government, the president, and any leader who is in Congress, who is in the government, who is in politics, all leaders, all presidents, all governments. We forget that government was and is instituted by God for a purpose. So we should pray for them. And I know that government is not always something that we're positive about, right? Especially nowadays, we see so much corruption, so much issues. 
For he's not calling us to rebel against government. He's not calling us to riot against government. Paul is calling for prayer. He said, pray for all governments, all people. And Paul gives them through very important reason as why we should pray for all people, including government. The first one is because we will be able to live as Christians. When the people, the government, and the leaders are in line with God's will, the believers will be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life, a godly and identified life in every single way. I mean, think about it. Remember that time the church was going through some heavy persecution. So preaching and going out and making disciples wasn't easy. It was hard because there was a chance that you were going to get caught, put in prison, killed, beat, abused. Many things were going to happen. So it wasn't something easy that they can just get up on a regular Sunday and just do, right? The government wanted to kill you and the people wanted to turn you in because they didn't want to hear what you were talking about. And I know it's a little bit hard to kind of wrap our minds around what this is because we don't have to deal with that kind of persecution just yet. But if all people are for God, they're for the will of God, they're not against God, meaning they're not going against God. They're, they're for God. They want God's will to be done. If all people were there, it is easy. We will be free to go and be anywhere at any time and preach the gospel. And we could be able to make disciples very easy without anyone pushing back. This is the commission that we have been called. That's what we have to do. It doesn't say, well, in good times you do it and in bad times you don't. This is just something we do in no matter what time it is. So it benefits us when the leaders and those around us are doing the right thing or for the right thing. And of course, this is not in the sense that we are going to prosper, but because we will be able to live as Christians. We will be able to go and do what we're called to do. We'll be able to live the life that God has called us to live without any worries. We're not looking for special favors from the government or anyone. We just want the ability and the freedom to do what God has called us to do without intervention. And we pray for that. And we pray that those people will come to God, therefore gives us and they themselves will have the ability, and well, not just the ability, the opportunity and the freedom and the privilege to go, be able to go out and preach the gospel. The second reason he calls them to pray for everyone is so that the gospel be available for everyone and everywhere. Look at verse 3, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of truth. When we do what we are called to do, not only is it pleasing God, but the gospel is being preached everywhere. Understand that this is 
our decision as individuals to accept Christ or not. That is our decision. That is our free will to accept or not. That's ours. But he has a desire that the whole world have the ability to hear the gospel. We're called to make disciples. We're called to preach the gospel. So we pray for everyone. So that whatever it takes for them to hear and accept the good news that it happens. We pray so that God has already opened their hearts in order that when the good news reaches them, they can receive it. Third reason is because the gospel message is exclusive. Look at verse 5. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And this is a sermon all of his own, but, but there is only one way to know God and one way to be reconciled with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. That is the only way. There's only one way, and it's through Christ. And I know a lot of people who say, you know, God made, him, made many ways to Him, right? Depending on what culture and what nation you're from, depending where you're from, depending who you are, it can be different. God has revealed himself many different ways to many different people. The problem is that if, it's that if that was true, God is a liar. And it's hard to have a relationship with a liar, right? We've, I don't know if you ever tried that. Maybe as you grew up having uh, you know, girlfriends and boyfriends, you might have come across one boyfriend or girlfriend who kind of never says the truth and is always kind of sneaking around. It's hard to want to have a relationship with someone who lies to you, who doesn't tell you the honest truth about themselves. It's hard. If God would have been, uh, if God would have created many different ways, is that it's, it's almost like if He was just randomly choosing different things, and you're never going to truly know who God is, because God is many different things. top of that, it will make Jesus' sacrifice, his torture, pretty useless, right? What's the point of Jesus dying on the cross if you can be saved many different ways? He just put his son through pain, through suffering, for nothing. Because you could have just done very, a lot of good deeds and that's it. So we have to understand that Jesus is not among many gods. There's only one God. And Jesus gave himself for any man who will believe in him. More specifically, he gave himself as a ransom. This means that Jesus substituted himself. He put himself in our place to make us free. And if you love God, and if you love your neighbor, wouldn't you want them to know the only way to salvation? There's only one way. Wouldn't you want them to know? 
So we pray for everyone. We pray for everyone so they can know the truth. The only one true way to be saved. Now Paul sets his attention to men in regards to this type of worship, which we looked at was prayer. So now he's setting his attention specifically to the men. And he says, I desire, in verse 8, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So Paul here is not talking about men, as in mankind, right? This word here, men, is specifically targeted to males. So his attention is for the male figure of the church. So what Paul is doing then is putting the emphasis on making sure the men of the church take responsibility for the praying. So basically, everyone should be praying, right? Because Paul talks about everyone should pray. He doesn't say only men should pray and women shouldn't pray. Everyone should be praying for everyone. But men have the responsibility to lead it and make sure that it's being done. And now, as those men lead this prayer, Paul points to how they should approach it because God wants you to come confident to Him. He wants you to be confident when you approach Him. But at the same time, we have to remember that He's still God. So we just can't approach God however we want. Paul says, come, lifting your holy hands. Which actually means to pray out of a character of righteousness with a complete devotion to God. This is this idea comes uh, is coming like if you were cleaning your hands, right? That's what he says. Come lift your holy hands. Like if you were cleaning your hands out of all dirt, out of all everything that's bad, and coming to him with clean hands. And this is because the Jews had this uh, ceremonial law that uh, they must first wash their hands. Uh, before they would pray as a symbol of spiritual cleanliness, meaning as they washed their hands before they came to pray, they were saying, I am clean. I am set right with you. I have no sins, pending sins against you and me, God. We don't have any pending conversations or any, any repenting that I need to do. I am clean. I am spiritually clean. So therefore, now I come to you in prayer. And this is the same thing that Paul is talking about because the hands represented the person's soul. So therefore, he says, come to prayer with holy hands lifted up. And then he says, come without anger or dispute, which is pretty straightforward, means that they must come in unity, in harmony, and in order. If they come in division and chaos, with anger towards each other, with problems towards each other, that's going to hinder their prayers. So he says, come 
lead this prayer. Come make sure this prayer is being done, but come the right way. So now Paul turns to instructions to the women. And this is where things get a little difficult. So Paul is going to break it down into three different principles. He says women, he's referring to the women. As you come to worship, as you gather in worship, in the public worship, First thing he says, you must dress modestly. Look at verse 9. Likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So what does Paul require of women in the context of worship service is first that their appearance be a respectable appearance and it be modest and it be self-controlled. And this applies to what clothes they wear, what decoration they put on their hair, what kind of hairstyle, what kind of accessory, anything for that matter. What is their physical look? And he tells them that they should avoid anything that will bring charge to them. Anything that would attract admiration or even jealousy from other people. Some of the things that made the list during those times to avoid was things like braided hair or any attire or jewelry that was made out of gold and pearls. Anything else that was very costly, anything flashy. Just avoid all that. Of course, that was their time. That was what they would struggle with. We can't necessarily say that, oh, we can't wear braids in our hair. We know that's not a flashy thing for us. But even for us, we have to be careful how it is that we dress. Why is it that we're dressing like that? What is it causing for us to dress a certain way or wear certain things? Now, Paul's not saying that they should go to the other extreme now and and start wearing rags and filthy clothes and just old clothing, right? Paul is looking for moderation. There, there needs to be a balance. But a balance that ultimately aims to representing your belief in God. So you're going to dress how you believe. You're going to dress with something that's not going to attract the wrong, ungodly attention. You have to think about it. What it is that you're wearing, is it going to call for something that you don't want, that God doesn't want? Is it taking away from God and adding on to you? Is it all of a sudden the attention is not going to be on who you are as a believer, but is it because you got that really nice gold bracelet or chain or earrings really big or, or that big ring that has a huge rock because you have to have it? Is it that's what's drawing the attention or the fact that you are a godly woman? As a matter of fact, if you want to get more technical, what is he aiming at is that they would dress like a woman who professes godliness. 
which Paul says is best seen when they are involved in good works. If you want to, if you're saying, well, you know, I'm not sure what it is to, to uh, what it is that I got to wear or anything. He says, do good works. Do good works. Rather than occupying yourselves on these flashy things, he wants women to focus on the work of the kingdom. Do good works. If your focus is on the kingdom of God, you're not going to be worried about what you're going to buy at the store because you don't got time. There's so much work to do in the kingdom of God that there is no time to go and buy the flashy or, or, or make enough money for that to, to buy those flashy things. Let's focus on the good works. That is what a godly woman looks like. A woman that's involved in the kingdom of God. Second principle, he says, learn in silence. In silence. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. I'm not going to go into much into details on this one because not that I don't, that I'm scared of touching this subject, but we kind of just spoke about that not too long ago. So I'm not going to overwhelm you with the same thing. But this is the same context and understanding that we, when we looked at 1 Corinthians, all right, when we looked at the whole letter to the church of Corinthians, chapter 11 and chapter 14, Paul brings the same exact thing to the church in Corinth. He's bringing the same exact thing to the church in Ephesus. So we know that this is not specifically to just the culture. This is to the church. And we have to remember that this is not Paul's opinion. This is God's words. Paul's speaking through the Spirit of God. So to reject this, you're, reject, you're not rejecting my opinion. You're not rejecting Paul's opinion. You're rejecting God's word. And the first thing Paul says is the same thing he told the church in Corinth. And is the woman should learn in silence. Now remember, this doesn't mean that they can't talk at all. This doesn't mean that you come into the worship service and just be quiet. Don't say anything. You're not allowed to speak. This doesn't mean that women don't have anything good to say or anything good to teach or anything good to, to bring to the table. That's not what he's saying. Actually, women have been and still are, and they take a big important part and big important role in teaching. They can teach other women, even in the church context. That's well teaching kids at home and in the church. And you can also see in Acts 8, chapter 18, how Priscilla, a woman, is involved in laying out and exposing Apollo to some of the truth of Christ that he didn't know. Right? He, she was with her husband under his authority, submitting to her husband, but she still took part. Remember, Apollo was one of the guys that the church was fighting over. How great is Apollo? Right? They were saying, oh, no, if you're Apollo, that's... that's she was responsible for teaching some of the things that he didn't know. And, of course, this was outside of the church context, right? Outside of the church worship service or the gathering of church, right? But she still had a responsibility. She still had something to say. She still had something to put. 
So this means that a woman in the church context, in the church worship context, in the church worship gathering, has to submit and stay in silence as the male leads the teaching in the church. And then he also brings up something that he's, he brought up in the church occurrence is that they should not have authority over men. This means that they do not have dominion over a man. Not because they're inferior to men, but because that is the order that God established. Remember, we spoke about that. We spoke how Eve and Adam, how they were created, how creation was created, how everything started. So he has proof with the, and he brings those, those proof from the Old Testament and not from a law that Moses uh, brought, but from the law of creation itself that God established before anything. And Paul tells them, he tells them the proof and the evidence. He says, Adam was born first, then Eve. So by creating Adam first, he intended him to be the head. And then women was created for men, therefore second as in submission, not second as in value. They don't, they're not value less, it's just second as in submission. And we can also see the evidence of what happens when this is violated, right? As Eve was tempted by the snake, rather than going to Adam to put the matters before him, saying, hey, someone in the, in the garden said that God was wrong, that I am misunderstanding, that he doesn't mean that. Can you help me understand this? Rather than doing that, instead, she allowed herself to be deceived. And when that happened, sin came into this world, through the disobedience of the woman. She took the initiative without submission. And this is very common. This happens a lot. We're a culture. It's not just ours. Through all history. This has been an issue since the beginning of time. The women want to take the lead over the men. Which is why Paul had to make them aware and remind them of how and what is the standard that God established. But then Paul goes on to say, in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and, because, and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Because this is one of the most difficult Bible verses to understand. There's so many different opinions about this. So why would he bring this up? Why would Paul say such thing? And let me start by saying that women in general... Women in general, as a whole, have one of the most important roles in this side of creation. But it's very easily overlooked. Because it doesn't fit the agenda of what society has set. 
And this important role that women have is that they are responsible for bringing forth a child and to raise them up. Men can't do that. I am only here. You are only here because of the ability for women to bring forth a child. A very important role. If you ask me, one of the most important roles in this whole world. Because of the way God has laid out the roles in this world and is within the church, it's easy to fall into the idea that women have no value. And society likes to push that. Even though that is the most important role in the whole world, they overlook that because society wants to say no. That is devaluing a woman. Now, if you look at it, Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived. And she became the transgressor. So, but to make up for this, verse 15 says, she will be saved through childbearing. What does this mean? This is the question. What exactly does this mean? So the idea here is that even though a woman raised, the woman raised, right? The woman in general did something bad in the garden, right? We know it was one woman specific, but women, right? She takes responsibility, her actions for all women. She represents all women. Because women did something in the, bad in the garden, by being deceived and falling into transgression, the woman race has been given the role to bring forth a child, bring forth child who God will redeem. That is what he's talking about. He's going to bring forth those who are going to be saved through the women to make up for, to make up for what they did. She will be used as the means to bring forth humans and if she maintains in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, she will continue to have an influence in the church body. She will continue to be able to teach. She will continue to raise kids to believe in God. That is a big responsibility. We talk about women in general is because we know that not all women are called to bear children. It's just a general all view that this is the role of the women. Now let's be clear because he's also not saying that childbearing will bring you salvation. He's not saying because you bore a child you will be saved. Because you bring child, children into this world, you will automatically be saved. Because then that will mean that you are saved by works. And that's the work of giving birth. So that's not what he's talking about. It also doesn't mean that if you're a saved believer, that your mom is going to be saved as well automatically. 
This doesn't also mean that uh, you will not die when, if you're a believing mom while giving birth. Some people thought that that's what it meant. That if you were a believer, a woman, and you're going to give birth, God is going to stop from you dying and you're going to be able to give birth and you're going to survive. Lastly, this is not talking about Mary bringing Jesus into this world because Paul is talking about future tense. He's not talking about a specific woman in the past tense. So overall, since the men are the tools to influence in the church by bringing the truth of the word of God, by preaching and teaching, the women will have her influence in the church by the way they carry themselves. The way they look, the way they take that responsibility of bringing forth a child and raising those child the way they're called to, by living a life the way God has called them to live. So you see, there is, there is a purpose, right? There is not just, oh, because I am not supposed to teach in the church, therefore I am a nobody, or because you are teaching, you are somebody, that doesn't mean any of that. It's a purpose. For every role, for every sex, for every generation, for every person in the church. So at the end, it doesn't matter that the role of a woman is more private and the role of a man is more public. I would actually prefer to be the other way, to be honest with you. I would prefer to have a role that's more private than it is public. But what matters is that our worship and our worship lives and our relationship between the church is that it be in order, a peaceful relationship, and that we do it in holiness. So, I know it's a little bit extended today. It's a bit long. I just all the time. But what can we take from these instructions as the church? First and foremost, we have to understand that this is the way that God established it. It is His way. It is not our ways. For God wants His ways to become our ways. And I learned something new this week. Because in Asia and Africa, our, our, our homes of, of birds called weaver birds. I don't know if you ever heard of weaver, weaver birds. These birds construct nests by weaving, taking strips of broad leaves palm fronds, grasses, and reefs. Uh, the male bird chooses the branch and begins to, uh, begins to make ribbons and attaching these ribbons together. They tie them using their beaks to make knots while their feet hold everything in place. There are multiple species within this kind of birds. For example, there are mast weavers, there are baya, Grosbeak, gray-headed, a few more, well, actually a lot more. But each one of these birds weaves its own style of nest. Some have entry tubes. Some have chambers. Some hang like droplets. Why? Why not just a single type of nest? Why not just all birds create the same nest and that's it? It's just a nest. One of the reasons is because of the different types of environment they live. But ultimately, underneath all those reasons, 
of all those types of nests, it's God's beauty and the gift of variety and creativity. It's because God decided to be so creative that he was just going to do it. That's what he chose to do. He chose to show who he is in his creativity. And then if you stop to look around, there's a lot of things in life that we're that are built with his own specific purpose because God chose to. Our bodies have organs that are built for specific functions and that function only. There are, there are uh, your physical differences that make a male and a female different, including the fact that only women can give birth, right? Only women can give birth. Even in creation, as complex as it is, there is an order that God designed everything to be. He designed everything to function the way it needs to be functioning. And all that brings beauty and glory to God. And nothing in this world is exempt from having a purpose. And this includes us humans. This means that there's a role and a purpose for every instruction and standard God sets forth. There's a reason why He sets what He says. There's a reason why He does what He does. There's even specific and many times different roles and purposes for men and for women. Even if we don't like it or even if we don't understand it. And we say, well, I don't like that role that God has called us men for. I prefer that it not be it. But he established it for a good reason, for a good purpose. And God called people to an order. And in the church, each role has been designed to create a well-functioning whole. We have been given specific roles in the church so we can all at the end, everything will work together. So a woman brings forth children and men lead and teach. And we all come together as a church with our different gifts and our different roles to build the kingdom, to make disciples, to bring the truth of God to everyone in this world. Look, God gives definite instructions about worship. Although they do not always meet the approval of men, Christians, or secular world. But he gives specific instructions. And even though he has given us some freedom and flexibility in our worship style or in our music or in our order of service and how we do things when we come and gather, there are some areas that he has spoken and we should obey. Whether we like it or not, whether society likes it or not, whether we understand it or not, he calls for it, we obey. And let me tell you, every single time, he's always been able to, uh, the same way he gives the instructions, the same way he tells us why. We may not always want to understand it because saying, oh, I don't understand, so therefore I don't have to follow is much easier than I understand, therefore I obey. But he has called for a specific order, for a specific way, for a specific purpose, and we obey. 
if it's how and, and who should we pray for, if it's how we carry ourselves, or even the role that we've been given, we should listen and follow because there are things at work that we don't see or fully understand. There's something working. God is working in something. We don't see everything because we're not God. So we cannot just question everything just because we don't like it or we don't fully understand it. There's something bigger, something bigger than us working. And I know one day we will see the big picture. I know one day we'll be in heaven with God and, and we will understand a lot of this. Maybe we won't understand everything. Because yet we still are not going to be God in heaven. But we're going to see a bigger picture. But meanwhile, we're here, we're living in this world, and we give glory to God by obeying His instructions and His commands. So church, pray with me. Hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. If you have any questions, would like to connect, or listen to our library sermons, jump right over to our website at www holycitychurch.us Again, we want to thank you for listening and remember, this podcast is not intended to replace your time at the church. So we hope you have a blessed week and talk to you again next week on Catch Up with Holy City Church. Holy City Church